0: in virtually every church there are three artifacts, three furnishings that are central to worship central to sacred space and uh, we've named two of them the the cross. Uh, there was a season where a lot of churches were removing the cross from their sanctuary space thinking that this is going to make us more seeker sensitive it's Not going to offend people who maybe are not believers. Fortunately, that season has largely passed. Uh, I remember when we were uh, remodeling our stage and we took down the cross on the center wall and we had yet to suspend this cross. And uh, boy, did I hear about that. And rightfully so. Uh, I still have John Huber's voice in my ears Uh, Where is the cross? We need the cross. Uh, This is the central symbol uh, of Christianity, and it's present in virtually every church. The second uh, symbol is a communion table. In Protestant churches, we call it a communion table. In Catholic churches, they they call it an altar. Uh, Either way, there is a table from which we, we participate in the practice of communion, it's a central symbol of our faith. And then the third is the, the baptismal, and it's either a, a baptismal tank, like the blue one that we wheel in from time to time, uh, where people are immersed, or it's a baptismal font from which people are, are sprinkled. Uh, but either way, there's some furnishing that, that makes possible baptism. And the interesting thing that unites all three of these furnishings of these, these items is that they all revolve around death. They all revolve around death. I mean, if you stop and think about it, it is, it's pretty crazy. The cross is perhaps the most cruel form of execution that man has ever invented, and here we have it as our central symbol, the cross. And the the, the communion table, the altar, uh, was a, a place where thousands upon thousands of animals were sacrificed. And now we have this communion table where we have the bread and we have the, the juice representative of another sacrifice, another death, the death of Jesus Christ who died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then the baptismal, we have the baptismal waters which are symbolic of a death as you go under the water you're being crucified with the Lord Jesus Christ and you, as you emerge you are a, a new creation. If you were at all squeamish, you might want to, like, look away. Look away. We might want to cleanse our sanctuary space of all of this, this blood. But don't look away. Don't hide your face. Because in the blood, in the death of Jesus Christ, is our hope. What can wash away my sins? nothing that word nothing is very literal nothing there is absolutely nothing not your effort to do better there is nothing that can wash away your sins but the blood of jesus he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was inflicted upon him And it's by his wounds, it's by his blood that we are healed. Uh, This morning we're going to continue our our journey through the Gospel of Mark. And where we left off last week, remember Mary was anointing Jesus with this precious uh, nard. And Jesus framed what she was doing as preparation for my burial. He's talking about his death. And now as we move on to the next passage, once again, Jesus is going to be talking about his death. We come to the, what we call the, the Lord's Supper, the, the Passover meal. That's what we're going to be reading today. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Father, we pray that we would never tire of the gospel of this incredible news that you took our sin upon you and you paid for it in full. Nourish us today by your spirit. Nourish us by your word. And nourish us from your table, we pray. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a, a Bible, we're reading from Mark chapter 14, uh, picking it up at verse 12. and The words will also be on the screen. Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread... When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. We're going to pause there before we continue reading. One of the, um, the age-old conundrums in Christianity is this um, relationship between God's sovereignty and what we call man's free will. God's sovereignty, God's control of the things that happen and the, the free will that he gives to us to, to make our own choices. And that, that relationship, that conundrum is present in our text today. The question is this Is God sovereign and in control of everything? Or did he create us with a free will and now he's kind of adopted a a hands off approach to the things that are going on in this world? With the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is this God's doing? Or is this Judas's doing? Is this the chief priest's doing? Is this Satan's doing? Is God sovereign? In our Reformed tradition, we answer yes. God is absolutely 100% sovereign. In the the Belgic Confession, one of our confessions, in Article 13, it it talks about this, and listen to how the Belgic Confession articulates it. Nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. That's pretty straightforward. Nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. So, does that even include the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus? Nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. So, yes, God was, was at work in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. So, do we blame God for this? Or do we blame Judas? Do we blame the chief priest? Do we blame Satan? Who's at fault? Guido de Bray is the author of the Belgic Confession, and he anticipated this question. It's a logical question. It's a reasonable question. If God is uh, ordering everything, then when bad things happen, naturally we we hold God accountable. We think, God, why did you do this? Or, Or why did you allow this bad thing, this evil thing, this suffering guido guido anticipated this reaction and so notice the very next sentence so he says nothing happens in this world without god's orderly arrangement here's the next sentence yet god is not the author of and cannot be charged with the sin that occurs for the divine power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that God's work is ordained and accomplished very well and justly, even when devils and the wicked act unjustly. So what I believe he's saying is yes, blame Satan, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Yes, in this case, blame Judas, blame the the chief priests but know that God is at work in all of it. None of this has caught God by surprise. This didn't happen, and now God is having to react to it. He's been at work all along in all of this. So remember the chief priests, how we read last week, they were conspiring. How are we going to kill Jesus and get away with it? How are we going to kill Jesus in such a way that it causes a, a the least disturbance, so that there's not a rebellion. And so then Judas shows up on their doorstep with an offer to hand Jesus over to them at an uh, opportune time, which means at a time when it's going to cause the least consequence, when nobody's going to notice. The chief priests are delighted to have this, this offer. Unbeknownst to them, the chief priests, unbeknownst to Judas, even unbeknownst to Satan himself, God is using this treachery to execute his sovereign plan. This uh, relationship between sovereignty and the free will of man, there are a lot of Christians today who don't like the fact that God is sovereign, who don't frankly believe that God is sovereign. And, And you can understand why. It raises so many uncomfortable questions. If God truly is sovereign, if nothing happens in this world apart from his orderly arrangement, then why fill in the blank? And we all have a blank to be filled in. There's things in all of our lives that we could say, why this? Why did did evil triumph here? Why is there so much suffering? Why did you take my, my loved one from me? There is no escaping that question, no matter what you believe. If if you believe that, that God reacts, that he's not acting, that, that he's created this world, he's given us free will, and now he's kind of stepped back, then the question is, why did he do that? I mean, is our God not capable of intervening? Is he beholden to all of our choices, our free will? There's no easy answers here. For me, I find comfort that no matter what happens, God is at work. And yes, there are some difficult questions, but I'd rather wrestle with that tension than wrestle with the tension that, that we are just kind of winging it down here and that we are all subject to fate's roll of the dice. Good luck. I was thinking this week about Judas, trying to imagine what was Judas experiencing. So they're at the, the supper. And they're eating together, and Judas has gone, and he's made this deal with the chief priest, and now he's returned, and they're having this this celebration. And then Jesus announces to everybody there, to all the disciples, the hand of my betrayer is here among us. What is Judas thinking? I think he's saying he knows. And how does he know? I was trying to be so discreet. I left quietly. I went to the, the chief priest secretly. I made sure nobody was following me. I didn't tell anybody. We had this like quiet, private deal. How does he know? And then the next thought is: if he knows, which obviously does, why isn't he exposing me? Why isn't he like turning me over to Peter, James, and John to, to take me out back? Rough me up a little bit. Why isn't he detaining me? Why is he allowing me to to carry this plan forward? What Judas doesn't know is that God is preparing to use the greatest act of evil that this world has ever known to bring the greatest victory that this world has ever known. And so now that the Passover meal is continuing and things are about to get even more bizarre. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." This meal that they were participating in was uh, called a Passover meal. It was a liturgical meal. It was a a scripted meal. There were certain things that that were designed to happen, certain things that were designed to be said, and it happened every single year at every single Passover celebration. So before we consider the meal, uh, I want to take you back to a couple previous events, one to what the meal represents, but we want to go back even further. I want to take you back all the way to a a, a mountain where God appeared to Abraham. God spoke to Abraham and he said, Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, Isaac. And go to the mountain of Moriah and sacrifice him there. I mean, talk about a bizarre command. This is totally foreign to who we know God to be. Child sacrifice was common in a lot of the the pagan religions of the day, and God condemned it. But here God is telling Abraham, I want you to take your son, listen to the words, your son, your only son, your son whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him. Abraham obeyed. He and Isaac are trudging up the mountain. Isaac is carrying the wood that is going to be used for the sacrificial fires. And it occurs to Isaac that something's missing. Father, he says, here's the wood. We have the fire. But where is the lamb? Where's the lamb that's going to be sacrificed? And I can imagine Abraham's heart breaking. And Abraham says to Isaac in faith, God is going to provide the lamb. And so they get to the top of the mountain and Abraham goes through with this. He binds Isaac and he's preparing for the the sacrifice and God stops him and diverts his attention over to a thicket where there is a ram that is caught in the thicket and God substitutes Isaac for this ram. God indeed has provided the the sacrifice. God has provided the, the lamb to be sacrificed. And so take that story, and now we move to the next story of which this Passover meal is commemorating. Israel has been captive in Egypt for, for hundreds of years, and they have cried out to God, and God has heard their cries. He's, delivered to, he's determined to deliver them. He sends Moses. Pharaoh's heart is hard. He's unrelenting, plague after plague, and, and Pharaoh still refuses to, to let God's people go, and so God brings one more plague, and he gives instructions to Israel. He says this, I'm going to pass through Egypt, and I'm going to strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt." He's talking about the blood of a lamb. Every house was instructed to sacrifice a lamb, to take the blood and paint it over the doors of their houses. And he's saying, when I see the blood of the lamb that I've provided, I'm going to pass over. Once again, the Lord is providing the sacrifice. The Lord is providing the lamb. And then I love uh, what it says because we just witnessed it today. It says, when your children ask you, just like Charlotte did today. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them. It's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So every year they have this meal to remember how God delivered them, specifically how God provided the lamb to to. to save them from the the destroyer. So this liturgical meal is scripted. It involves unleavened bread. Uh, They're remembering how they had to leave in haste. There was no time to wait for the bread to rise, so they have this unleavened bread. The meal involves several cups of of wine to remember the, the sacrifice of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. It involved bitter herbs to remember their affliction in Egypt. And it involved eating a lamb. So in the upper room, Jesus takes on the role of the host, offers a prayer. He's presiding over the meal. Remember, this is all scripted. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. But then he parts with the script. He parts with the tradition. And instead of drawing attention back to the the unleavened bread, he says, this is is my body. This is new language. This is my body. That had to be strange. When you've heard something a million times said one way and suddenly it's said a different way, you can bet it captures the attention of everybody present. And then after the meal, he continues the liturgy, continues the script by taking the cup, but instead of drawing the connection to the blood of the the lamb... The blood painted over the the doors of the houses. Again, he introduces new language. This is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood, which is poured out for many. Again, this has to be so strange to them. And then I imagine this, whether this happened or not, I don't know. But I imagine one of the disciples asking Jesus the very same question, that Isaac asked Abraham, Father, in this case, teacher, the bread is here, the cup is here, but where is the lamb? There's no mention of the lamb at this Passover meal that they're having. Where is the lamb? And then you can't help but hear Abraham's response. God's going to provide. God's going to provide the lamb for us. How do lambs take away sin? They die. They die. Their blood is is shed. They're sacrificed. And we know that the sacrifice of animals was insufficient to take permanently the the sins of people away. And so we needed a sacrifice once for all that was permanently going to take the sin away. A perfect sacrifice. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. Who is this? God's son. God's only son. The son whom he loves. Sacrificed for you. Sacrificed for me. So we don't hide our eyes, we don't turn away from the cross, we don't get squeamish around the blood, because we recognize this is our hope. And if we sanitize our faith from the the blood and the death, there's nothing left to have faith in. We glory, we glory in the cross, because on the cross... The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Son whom God loved, His only Son, His one and only Son, died for us. His death equals our life.